Let me pray for us. It's okay. Let me pray for us as we get started here. Holy Father, Lord, as we embark on this subject of the wrath of God, as we come to uh, look upon what Scripture has to say about your wrath, what Scripture has to say about your justice, Lord, I pray that you would illumine our eyes. I pray that truly those in this place would be awakened if they have not seen if, if they are unaware of the consequences of sin. And Lord, I pray that your wrath, that which you have delivered us from in the Lord Jesus for believers, I pray that by seeing it once again, we would be made to appreciate that blood which was spilt on our behalf in the death of your Son. Lord, I pray that you would help me. pray that you would give grace to your servant. And I pray, Lord, that you would give this congregation, grace and mercy for me as I attempt to preach and lay before these subjects before them today. Uh, We pray all these things in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen. It is a fearful thing to prepare a sermon to preach. Uh, It is more fearful uh, to preach a sermon that you don't have prepared. To preach. But I have something. I do have something. Um, I got a call this morning about 10.30. A text from Emilio. Can you preach? So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I went through some topics. The, the best thing that I could grab a hold of and I thought would be profitable for our time this afternoon would be a subject that I have already taught, the wrath of God, in Sunday school, something that is fresh upon my mind and something that I believe is profitable for us to continue to hear and something I don't believe would be a burden to lay before you once more this morning. I'm encouraged by the words of Peter. Peter 1 verse 12, he says, Therefore I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. And have been established in the truth which is present with you. And I consider it right as long as I am with you in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. And so I would love to stir you up by way of reminder to put before you the justice, the wrath of God uh, this afternoon. So... Let's get into this topic. The Bible has so much to say about the wrath of God. The Bible has so much to say about the justice of God. Genesis 8.25 says, God is the judge of all the earth. We see that. It consists that the justice of God consists of that God will repay everyone according to his or her works, treating the righteous one way and treating the wicked another way. The God of all the earth will do Right, And we see in Exodus 20, verse 7, that God by no means will hold the guilty to be innocent, and that God will deal unsparingly 
with a sinner according to their deeds and will pour out the consequences of their sins upon their heads. The justice of God will be vindicated. God's holiness, God's righteousness will be vindicated. And it is because God is righteous that he will necessarily vindicate his righteousness, his holiness. And so when we learn or we hear about the truth of God's justice, it it does remind us of this thing. It reminds us that everyone in this room has broken the law of God. Everyone in this room has done that which God hates. And you will have to answer for the way that you chose to live in this life. You will have to give an answer for that. 2 Corinthians 5.11 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done whether good or bad, therefore, the apostle says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, knowing the fear of the Lord. And he says that in an evangelical, he says that within the body of Christ, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. It should be a great duty of believers to have before them to have that responsibility, to own that responsibility, that they should desire to persuade men, knowing the fear of the Lord, to persuade men of that great day. Even as the song we were just singing says that there is a great danger that believers have been uh, delivered from because they have been purchased by that wrath-absorbing ransom of Christ when he laid down his life. But there is a danger for the unbeliever who has not been delivered from the wrath that is to come. So how do we understand the wrath of God, the justice of God? We know that God is righteous. We know that God is just in his essential being. And from those attributes, when they are exercised, flow the wrath or anger of God from his justice, from his righteousness. And these attributes of God aren't something that have always been on display necessarily. Uh, Some have called the justice of God something of a secondary attribute because it uh, it takes God's justice to be provoked in order to be exercised. God must have an object to be angry at. And when God in eternity passed, there was no sin. There were no sinners. God's anger, his justice was not being exercised. There, was no, there wasn't an object of hatred for God's justice or his anger uh, to harness. And so, that is the answer to why God is not angry eternally like he is. Um, he, is right, he is eternally righteous, the Bible says. The Bible says that he is eternally good, but... In terms of God's justice, the Bible doesn't say that God is eternally angry. He's, not, he, he's never had an, uh, an eternal anger, uh, uh, an object of anger uh, for his wrath to be unleashed on. But it does say this in Romans 
that the, the wrath of God, it operates more functionally as you see in Romans 1.18. If you want to turn there with me, let's go ahead to Romans 1.18. Where do we see the wrath of God being demonstrated? And we see it being demonstrated in a functional, in a relational way. Romans 1.18 says this, it says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against. And so it, ha- it must have an object to be angry at. And this is what we see in Romans 1.18. That the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so we know that God will not overlook sin. In fact, God has never overlooked sin. God has never overlooked sin. God cannot overlook sin. Uh, God will either pour out the consequences of your sin upon you, or God will pour out the consequences of your sin upon Christ. But zero sin is ever looked over. Zero sin is never looked over. J.I. Packer asked this, Would a God who took as much pleasure in evil as he did in good, be a good God. If God was indifferent to evil or good, would he be ultimately good? He wouldn't be. Justice would be perverted. God would have, in some sense, he wouldn't have much of a much. He wouldn't have much of a delight if, if uh, in, in, in being ultimately good, if there was something in him which did not make him angry at evil. If that makes sense. It may show that God does tolerate some sin. And we know that God does not tolerate any sin, right? Um, and it doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter what degree of unrighteousness. It doesn't matter what degree of sinfulness, as you know. It's not, uh, it's not that we get uh, 100 sins in order to, you know, get underneath that bar of God's justice or three strikes and you're out. But the Bible says the soul that sins, it shall die. The soul that sins, it shall die. And the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And I know that Emilio preached on this even a couple of weeks ago. The wrath of God in our, in our, was our subject in First Thessalonians. And we talked about the issue that this is a hard topic uh, for many to preach on, for many to speak about, um, and to meditate on the wrath of God in our day. But I guarantee you it is very profitable for your own soul to meditate on the wrath of God, to know it, to be intimately acquainted with the wrath of God, the justice of God, the anger of God. The desires of God, the, His hatred against sin. It is so important for us to know those things. As it is important, as we cannot understand the Old Testament without the New Testament, in terms of the gospel, you cannot understand the good news if you don't know the bad news. And if you don't know the consequences that your sin deserves. You will hardly prize the gospel of grace if you have not been made known, if you, have, if you have not been made aware of the fallen condition and the state of your own heart and who you are in the eyes of God as an unconverted sinner. 
You will not prize the grace of God if you don't believe that you are in trouble. If you don't believe that you are in danger, you will not prize the grace of God. Right? God is holy. God is, as the Bible says, holy, holy, holy. And some may say that I couldn't believe in a God who would punish us for our sins. It sounds too harsh that God would, that God would, would condemn me to an eternity of conscious eternal punishment for, for a sin that was committed in time. But God is holy. God is holy. Your question should not be, why does God consign men to hell forever, but why does he send anyone to heaven? That should be your question. That should what should be baffles the mind is that you have rebelled against a holy God, and why is he letting you into heaven? Why has he sent you a sacrifice? Why has he sent his son in that out of intensity of his own love? You see that? That God so loved the world, he gave his son. Why did he do that? Seeing what we are, that should be what baffles you. Not that God sends God-hating, rebellious people to hell. How can God, and this is the question we will seek to answer, how can God show his kindness towards sinners? How can God show his kindness towards sinners? How can God be merciful to his enemies? God can be kind to sinners because he is wrathful. That is the answer. God can be kind to sinners because he is wrathful. And I would say salvation can only exist because God is just. Because God is just, salvation can exist. Salvation cannot exist apart from the wrath of God being exercised in the Lord Jesus Christ. The greatest expression of the love of God toward you was when the Father sent His Son to die and to be a substitute and to suffer your wrath and by imputation, I've said it many times, he became the greatest sinner that ever existed. By imputation. He was numbered among the transgressors, so we might be numbered among the righteous. Numbered among the righteous. And it was on the cross that the torrential fury and wrath of God that was due you the wrath of God which was due me was poured out upon the Son who became an object of the hatred of God. What did He become? He became sin. He became sin of His own willingness. He became that which God hated so that we might become that which God loves. It is by that substitution that you are accepted. It is by that substitution that you are delivered from the wrath of God. It is by that substitution of Jesus standing in your place that He brings us to God, that He reconciles us to the Father, fulfilling the Father's ultimate plan of salvation. So 
So if you want to see how serious God is about sin, about how serious He is about His holy set standard of perfection and righteousness, just look at the cross. Look at the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at His death. Stephen Sharnock said, Not all the vials of judgment that have or shall be poured out upon the wicked in the world, nor the groans of the damned creatures give such a demonstration of God's hatred of sin as the wrath of God let loose upon His Son. Upon His Son never did holiness ever appear more beautiful and lovely than at the time when our Savior's countenance was most marred in the midst of His dying groans. It is in the midst of those groans that God can satisfy His anger and turn to sinners in mercy. That is when God, and that is the basis on which God can turn to you and I, those who are in the Lord Jesus Christ, and offers mercy. Leon Morris concluded this, unless we give real content to the wrath of God, unless we explain it, unless we give it substance, unless we are fully able to uh, describe it to those in, who we are evangelizing to, to those in this world, unless we hold that men really deserve to have God visit upon them the painful consequences of their sin, we empty God of the forgiveness He offers. Unless we are able, unless we are able to give real content, unless, we, unless, unless men are made to see that they do, in fact, deserve to have their consequences poured out upon their head, what will the forgiveness of God, what will it register in their own minds if they haven't become aware of the fact that they deserve hell, that they deserve to be punished? If men don't believe that, why, what's the big deal of forgiveness? Why do they need to be forgiven? From what? What kind of danger am I, am I in? We have to make that danger known to them. We have to preach what the Word of God says about, those, about the consequences of our sin. Let me give us some definitions here. Biblical definitions of wrath, indignation, anger, pouring forth from God as we see them being used in Scripture. You see the wrath of God. That word wrath in the, in the Greek is speaking of a deep, intense anger and an indignation. It is a heating up. It is a heating up. If you've ever seen a piece of metal that you put into a furnace and it gets white hot, it is gold and it is glowing, the anger of God is, is pictured as something like that, as the wrath of God, something that is being heated up, burning with fury. Indignation is a different word. These are all very similar. A righteous anger aroused by injustice. 
is where we see this word being used in Scripture of righteous anger aroused by injustice and immorality, and you have the word anger, a stirring of resentful displeasure and strong antagonism, which is a hostility, an enmity, a strong hatred coming from the very affections of God by a deep sense of injury, of being offended by a creature he created. Uh, there are many, uh, there are many, I wanted to look at a couple of examples of the anger and wrath of God on display in Scripture. If you would turn with me, go to Exodus 32. Exodus 32. Exodus 32 verses, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 so we can get the whole context of this Scripture. But you see the words being used for wrath and anger in this passage to show the terrible anger of God toward idolatry. Toward idolatry, as you see here, that the people of God, the severity of their sin, has utterly provoked the righteous jealousy of Almighty God. Exodus 32, 1 says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come make us a God who will come before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought, up, who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. He went up to the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights to receive the law, the Ten Commandments, and he was going to come back down. But he was gone for so long, they began to question where he was, what had happened to him. And Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf and said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Just blasphemous. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and to rose up and to play. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once for your people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. Now then let me alone that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them and I will start all over with you. I will make you a great nation. You see something of the anger of God when the people of God are turning away so quickly. The Bible says in multiple places that you have been rebellious and stiff-necked from the day that you left 
Egypt. From the day that you left. And we see here the cup of God's anger was absolutely tipping over on his people. He was ready to absolutely commit genocide of his people and start all over with Moses. And Moses prays for them. That's what you see in verse 11. He entreated them. O Lord, why doth thine anger burn against thy people whom thou hast brought out of the land of Egypt with a great hand and a mighty, a great power and with a mighty hand. And God stays his anger upon his people. You see something very similar as you see also if you turn to Numbers you go to the book of Numbers, chapter 16, you all know the, 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 the story of Korah's rebellion against God, where Korah, Dathan, and Abiram provoked, what do they do? They provoked the congregation of the people of God to oppose Moses and Aaron, the very spokespeople of God, the representatives of God, to lead his people from Egypt to the promised land. And they provoked the anger of God by bringing the congregation against God's messengers. Against God's messengers. And he goes on and he says that God will bring whoever is holy to himself, those who are truly holy, because there was an accusation that Korah, Dathan, and Abiram were on one side and Moses was in the wrong on this side. And he said, God will vindicate. God will show who is truly in the right. God will, God will vindicate the fact that he has been using me to lead you in that in a holy way. And we see that because... Moses was vindicated that God brought judgment upon these men by absolutely destroying them. The very dwellings uh, where they live, you can see, starting in verse 30, it says, But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing, and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs, and they descend alive into Sheol. Alive they will descend. And this is exactly what you have. It says in verse 31, Then it came about as he finished speaking all these words, that the ground was under, that was under them split open. The ground was literally, it was literally ripped apart beneath their feet, Their tents, their dwellings, their families perished in the ground and God closed them back up. And you heard the voices of them perishing in the ground as it was being ripped open from among their feet, from below their feet. You see the wrath of God being demonstrated in so many passages of Scripture, not to mention the flood which God wiped out, just about an entire humanity leaving only eight people It was catastrophic. You have Sodom and Gomorrah. And you also have uh, what you have also in the book of Nahum. If you would uh, go ahead and turn to the book of Nahum. Book of Nahum. 
chapter 1, starting in verse 2 through 3, you see him describing something of the justice of God, the anger of God, the wrath of God. And it says, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And whirlwind and storm in his, is his way. And clouds are the dust beneath his feet. Going down to verse 6, he continues, Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. The Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight. And contextually, this is speaking about Nineveh. And in his wrath, he will make a complete end of its sight and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Will pursue his enemies. It is absolutely certain, my friends, if you are an enemy of God in time, He will be your enemy for all of eternity. He will be your enemy for all of eternity. We see just kind of in biblical history how the wrath of God has been displayed. Now let's look at what present wrath looks like. Right? We've dealt with some of the, God's past dealings with men. And, uh, the, and the, those dealings, most certainly in different eras, they, they, they almost uh, in some ways reflect his present dealings, his wrath with men, and, and, and all kinds of cosmic ways that you see, whether, it's a, whether it is a storm, whether it is death, whether it is famine, whether it is plague, that God sends upon this earth, that God sends upon this world that you see. But look at the abiding of the wrath of God. Turn with me to John 3, 36. The present wrath of God. Look at what John 3, 36 says. It says this, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. This is that present wrath that I'm referring to. The wrath of God abides. The wrath of God abides. The Greek word used here is meno, which means to remain. The wrath of God remains. It abides. The wrath of God, his anger, it stays. It's as if the unrepentant man or woman, they're walking around in a wrath of, a realm of wrath. A realm of wrath. They cannot escape it. If they don't find peace in this life, they will not find peace after this life. They cannot escape the realm of wrath that, that they are abiding in, that they are staying in. 
The wrath of God abides on them. It abides on them. As surely as this roof hangs over your head, so the wrath of God hangs over the heads of unbelievers. You see? The wrath of God truly abides. And unless you are delivered from the wrath of God by Jesus Christ, it will remain. It will remain forever under and in a realm of wrath from, from this time into eternity. Always in a realm of unquenchable anger. Thomas Boston says, O miserable soul, if you flee not from this wrath unto Jesus Christ, though your misery had a beginning, yet it will never have an end. The wrath of God, though your misery had a beginning. For those who were in Christ, your misery had a beginning. Your misery had an end by the grace of God. But those who are not in Christ, but they are in the realm of God's wrath, their misery had a beginning. It will never have an end. Is that not terrifying? That it is inescapable at some point. Should devouring death wholly swallow you up and forever hold you fast in the grave, it would be kind. It would be best, but your body would be reunited to your immortal soul and live again and never die, that you may be ever dying in the hands of an ever-living God. Death will quench the flame of man's wrath against us, but nothing will quench the wrath of God against us outside of Christ. Nothing will quench quench that wrath but God's wrath when it has come upon a sinner for millions of ages when God's wrath has come upon a sinner for millions of ages it will still be the wrath to come it will still be the wrath to come even in a million years from now, there is still the wrath to come. There is still the wrath to come. Those who died 2,000 years ago, uh, the, the, the sinner on the cross who was not saved, when he died next to the Lord Jesus and went to hell, he is still in hell. And what is before his mind is, that there is still wrath to come, that it will never be satisfied. It will never be satisfied. Present wrath. Look at future wrath. Let's look at this together. If you are not alive to God, you must be dead in your sins. You have to be dead in your sins. You are. If you are not alive to God in Jesus Christ, and if you are dead in your sins, the wrath of God most surely abides over you, and it is being demonstrated in your life. It is being uh, unleashed upon you, and it's soon to break forth in its fullness upon you. J.C. Ryle says this in 
We should meditate upon this quote. He asks such an important question for each of us to answer. Where are your sins? Where are your sins? Either your sins are upon yourself, unpardoned, unforgiven, uncleansed, unwashed away, sinking you daily nearer to hell, or else your sins are upon Christ. Taken away, forgiven, blotted out, and cleansed away by Christ's precious blood. Where are your sins? Where are your sins? Have you answered that question? Where are your sins? Brethren, I would have you not to sacrifice your assurance, the assurance of salvation that God sweetly provides by the security that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ by muddling in sin, by muddling in sin, or by coming short of the grace of God. Do not come short of the grace of God or receive the grace of God in vain. That is the exhortation that we have from the book of Hebrews that Paul exhorts us to in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. An old Puritan testified to the effects of displeasing God in your life. The effects of displeasing God in your life can have a detrimental impact on your assurance of salvation. You've probably experienced that to some point when you have sinned against God, a guilty conscience, the temporality of being guilty because you have sinned against God. The good thing for believers is that their conscience has been purged of that guilt which sends men to hell, that guilt which is still upon their account. Uh, they have not been justified, but they are still condemned. Uh, but, the, but the believer is in a different place. His conscience, may, his conscience may burden him because he has sinned against God, but God grants repentance. God grants faith. In order to, in order, it's, it's, it's remedial. It is remedial. The trials in a believer's life are going to be remedial versus the trials in an unbeliever's life are going to be retributive. They're not going to be, just like the nature of hell is not remedial, right? There's no source of remedy in hell. It's only for punishment. It's only for punishment. But the, but, the, but the trials that God sends believers is remedial. Uh, and that's a, 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 a healthy way of looking at the things in which we suffer, whether it's sickness, whether it's um, a car accident, whether it's death, whether it's these things. We know that ultimately we're not being punished for our sins because Jesus was punished for our sins. Jesus was punished on the cross for our sins. We're not paying double, right? Just because you're being disciplined doesn't necessarily mean you're being punished. 
in the same way for your sins. When Christ, when Christ incurred, when, Christ, uh, when He absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf, but God will chastise us. And, 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 that, is to, and that is an indication, that is a, a healthy indication uh, that you are one of God's sons or daughters because he, he, he chastises, He disciplines those He loves. Those He loves. But He will punish and destroy those He hates. Uh, an old Puritan said, Some of the choicest servants of God, when under the hiding of His face, you see, you go, actually, you go and look in the book of Psalms, you see this multiple times, God, where are you? Why have you turned your face from me? You see that multiple times. There are a couple of psalms that end in agony. They don't end in hope. And a couple of saints have experienced that. You can see just in the biblical narrative of Scripture. But he said, Some of the choicest saints of God, when under the hiding of his face and dreading the effects of his displeasure, have bewailed their condition with bitter lamentations. And now he turns his focus from the saints to the impenitent and asks, How then will you endure when God shall pour out the vials of his wrath upon you and set himself against you to torment you? And we shall, when he shall make your conscience a funnel by which he pours the burning anger of his wrath into your soul. And as I've mentioned, I've mentioned this before, that I, I need to be sitting in the chairs. Messages on the wrath of God, there's nothing more fearful than the wrath of God. It is absolute foolishness when you're evangelizing and people are indif- indifferent to the wrath of God. They are indifferent to the nature of hell and his anger upon them when they don't care. And I'm thinking there's nothing that should concern you more than being a guilty sinner in the hands of an angry God. There's nothing that should concern you more because you might enjoy some kind of comfort in this life as an unbeliever. God will provide a common grace to you to enjoy And that is only for your repentance. And ultimately, if you don't turn, for your condemnation in which you will spend an eternity in the the presence of the wrath and fury of God. And think about the future of the wrath to come. To be caught in a hurricane must be terrifying. If any of you have been caught in a storm... I have been driving a couple of times and I've been caught in something like a tornado warning where the roads are flooding, I can't even see past me. It's fearful to be out in one of those storms. It's fearful to be caught in a hurricane. You have the horizontal winds, you have the winds just screaming and howling, right? And they're just throwing and destroying everything in their paths, but to be caught in the storm of God's wrath with His power mounted up against you like a cannon should make you shudder, should make you tremble. That should bring fear in you. 
I mean, just think, there's no, when, you're, when you're in the storm of God's wrath, there's no place to flee to. There's no refuge, the other side of the grave. There is no refuge. Oh, it makes me want to weep. I just, I, I think I might have told some of you, my grandma, she has cancer. She, uh, she beat cancer. Um, and she, I, I believe that's just God's grace. That's God's mercy upon her. Not something she did by her own willpower and strength and something that she relied on her body to naturally cure her of. But she was losing her hair, and I, my, my face was in the ground for her, pleading with God. God, if she goes right now, she's, she's gone forever. She's gone forever if she dies right now. Please open up a time. My grandpa wouldn't even allow me to go over to preach the gospel to her. And I was just weeping in my room because uh, there was no one to go. He wouldn't let me into the house to go and preach that message, the message of the gospel, which includes the wrath of God. It includes it. You must give that content to the wrath of God for someone to appreciate forgiveness in Christ. But you don't want to be around when those waves come. You don't want to be staring down the barrel of God's torturous wrath in his omnipotent anger. Christ did look down that barrel. Christ looked down that barrel. The very thought of it seized him with fear. The very thought of that overwhelmed him with grief. In fact, you see Christ in the garden. The very meditation made him sweat drops of blood. Drops of blood. And many sinners will be in the eye of this storm forever as they're abiding, their everlasting habitation, weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Do you get the picture of that? Do you understand the picture of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth? The sense of being under... The torturous, conscience-piercing wrath of God when you're, you're grinding your teeth under torments that are overwhelming to you. I was just thinking, I was making food the other day and I turned my oven on and I thought if I were to touch that at 400 degrees, what would happen to my hand? And to think that I could never let go of that for all of eternity... And God would sustain my body in such a way that I would burn. The Bible says that who will deliver us from everlasting burnings, burnings. But we should let men know, we should tell them, when, when you die, death is final, hell is real, and eternity is forever. There is no grace in hell. Do you understand that? There is no grace in hell. Mercy is cut out forever. Mercy is cut out forever. God stops sustaining that grace. He will no longer constrain the sinner's heart. The grave will swallow them and they are not coming back when they die. For the impenitent, the wrath of God is unavoidable. They will experience a piercing fire that will constantly and perpetually cook their conscience for all of eternity. Let me 
try to wrap up with a couple of points here that we've looked at past wrath, God's dealings with men in the past. And we've looked at God's dealings with men in the present, that his wrath is hanging over them. That is a fearful thing for God to be angry, angry, of, angry, angry uh, uh, at you while you're alive. It's another thing for God to be angry at you when you are dead. And we've looked at this future, the future of wrath. The future of wrath. The condition of the damned inside of this hell. Inside this hell. Oh, and I please, I beg, if you are unconverted, just to continue listening to what I'm saying. Even children who are not converted, I pray that you would not tune out of the things that I am saying, but that you would meditate upon them, that, they, that you would give these, these matters due weight upon your conscience and upon your heart. We see the wrath of God being satisfied or being vindicated in the punishment of the wicked, of the damned. But you also see God's justice and, and, and His wrath being vindicated and satisfied in the sin-bearing, wrath-absorbing death of His Son. We could call this redemptive wrath. Some have called this redemptive wrath. Past, present, future wrath. And redemptive wrath. That wrath which is satisfied in the Lord Jesus when he was a wrath-absorbing ransom, when he shed his blood on that cross. And let me paint a picture for you. Imagine that you are standing in front of a dam. Many of you have heard this example. Imagine you are standing in front of a dam 1,000 feet wide, one, uh, 10,000 feet high, and this represents the wrath of God that is due to you, and that wrath is only building and building and building, and it is at its tipping point, and God is going to pour out this torrential flood of waters upon your head. He tears down this dam, uh, uh, this dam of water, and He lets it roar towards you, and when it is about to get upon you, and it is hastening towards you, the ground splits open and drinks up the water. And, and this, is to, this is to relay or to reflect like the nature of the death of the Lord Jesus when he bore the wrath of God and absorbed it on our behalf. The wrath of God was coming and the ground split open and before it got to us, he drank it up. Every last drop the Lord Jesus drank up in his death on the cross. In his death, the Lord Jesus drank up the wrath of God that was due to us. This is how redemption is accomplished, was accomplished, not by the crowning of gold or in the light of the radiant transfiguration, but in the darkness of separation from the Father. That's one of the only prayers where Jesus is interacting with the Father. 
he didn't even, he didn't even lead with the greeting or this, this, the, same, uh, the same name which he always uses. And one of the only, one of, and, and I think the only prayer where Jesus is speaking to the Father and he does not call him Father, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One of the only prayers. And that is what happened on the cross. That is what the Lord Jesus said on the cross. It, uh, it was on the cross where wicked men put flesh-tearing thorns as a crown upon God's anointed, our Savior, where they spat in His face, where they beat Him, and where they strung him up with nails and pinned him to beams of wood where he would die and absorb the wrath of God that was due towards a new humanity of people that are comprised of those who are believers. That is, that is comprised of those who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus and who have left their life of sin. The son was, was abandoned so that we could be embraced. Uh, the Son was rejected so that we could be reconciled. He was forsaken on our behalf. He became a curse. He, was, he willingly became that which God hated, as we said, so that we could become that which God loved. We should take up as our duty and responsibility matters like the wrath of God, the justice of God, it will make you appreciate the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will make you prize Him, your bold Savior who went to the cross to bear your wrath, to suffer your shame, your guilt, and to take it away. Isn't that incredible? He takes it away. He delivers us from the wrath which is to come. We should adore this Jesus. We should magnify this Jesus. That because of him, we will never be punished for our sins. But the relationship between us and the Father has eternally changed. That's a beautiful truth. That God will never become your judge again. There isn't a possibility, as we see revealed in the revelation of God's word, that God will ever change his mind concerning those he has intended to save. He will always love them, and their relationship has changed. His relationship to them and their relationship to him. They are no longer his enemies. He is no longer their judge. But we are now his friends. And he is a father. He is our father. We can come to him boldly. Bold, I approach the eternal throne. Believers have that privilege of boldly approaching the eternal throne of God. As one writer puts it, and I want to end with this quote. Well may we all tremble before such a God to treat with impunity, to live as if one is exempt from punishment or harm or loss. Um, one can crush 
to live, to treat with impunity one who can crush us more easily than we can a moth is a suicidal policy. To openly defy him who is clothed with omnipotence, who can rend us in pieces or cast us in hell at any moment he pleases, is the very height of insanity. To put it on its lowest ground, it is but the part of wisdom to heed his command. And this is wisdom for you to heed his command. Psalm 2 verse 12 says, Kiss the son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way. And when his wrath is kindled but a little. Kiss the son. Do you get the imagery? Kings, when they are on their thrones, would make their servants bow down to them and put their ring out in front of them. And as a token of appreciation, they would kiss this ring or kiss this hand. And in the same way, as a position of humble obedience and submission to the Lord Jesus, it is wisdom, it is our wisdom to kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and ye perish from the way when His wrath is kindled but a little, but a little. Let us magnify the Lord Jesus for what He has done in delivering us from the wrath that is to come. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, O God, who can do justice to such a topic as your wrath, as your justice, as your anger, and the effects of sin which have come upon those who have rebelled against you? This is the, this is the, uh, the, the very situation of the entire world. Your word says that all have sinned. And fallen short of your glory. That all people fall under the weight of this condemnation. And the anger that is due to our sins. But by the grace of God. That is being demonstrated in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his cross. Those who believe in him. Those who cling to him. Those who run to him for refuge. Those who come to him for pardon. Can receive mercy. Oh God. Would you provoke unbelievers, the impenitent in this room and outside, to bow to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and to believe on him and what he accomplished in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. And I pray that they would partake of his death if they wish to partake of his life. And Lord, I pray that you would have mercy upon us. And I pray that you would give us a fervent desire and zeal to persuade men knowing the fear of the Lord. Let us not be stagnant about this truth. Let us be moved by this truth. By your grace, assisting. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.